Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. In 1817, two years before the legal transfer of Florida from Spain to the United States, the Seminole Indians numbered as many as 5,000. They were organized into settled towns across North and Central Florida and were thriving on an agricultural economy. By the close of hostilities in 1858, those remaining Florida Seminole who had not died from combat or illness or had been forcibly removed to reservations in the Oklahoma Territory numbered fewer than 200, and these were left in scattered family camps on mostly inaccessible remote tree islands in the Everglades and Big Cypress Swamp. It is these Florida-based survivors whose descendants are now organized into the federally recognized Seminole Tribe of Florida and the Miccosukee Tribe of Indians. Federal recognition depended on cultural survival and continuity of historical identity, both of which resulted from an internalized self-identity born in response to a period of cultural stress and crisis. Among the three federally recognized tribes today, distinct political identities exist. The Seminole Tribe of Florida has about 2,600 members, with most living on the three largest reservations, at Hollywood, Big Cypress, and in the Everglades region of the Florida South. The 500 or so members of the Miccosukee tribe live on the Tamiani Reservation, around U.S. Route 41, west of Miami, in the Everglades. A small, politically independent group in Florida lives separate from these two and has resisted federal recognition in favor of maintaining a traditional identity, staying away from modern society. The third federally recognized political entity is among the descendants of the Seminole deported to Oklahoma during the wars. They comprise the 12,000-member Seminole Nation of Oklahoma and the Wewaka area of Seminole County. In this podcast, we will explore the ethnogenesis of the Florida Seminole. We will define ethnogenesis, and we will explain the continued cultural importance of the Seminole Wars to the people of Florida. Here to help us understand this is our guest today, Brent R. Wiseman. Dr. Wiseman is Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at the University of South Florida. He has served as the editor of the Florida Anthropologist, President of the Seminole Wars Historic Foundation, and the Alliance for Wheaton Island Archaeological Research and Education, and was a founding director of the Florida Public Archaeology Network. His research interests continue to be Seminole Indian culture and history, Florida archaeology, and North American Indians. He has written and published numerous articles and books about the Seminole. Dr. Wiseman, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Thank you, Patrick. You use a term to describe how the Seminole became who they are today. You call it ethnogenesis. What is ethnogenesis? Ethnogenesis is a term used by anthropologists to explain the process of how people in group come to identify themselves, how they develop a sense of self-identity that sets their group apart from other groups. 
And this process can be gradual. It can be brought on by outside factors. It can be a process that results from social isolation where groups just develop in distance or in separation from other groups. It can be brought on by combinations of stress or resistance to outside forces. All these things can be in play and are studied by anthropologists. Ethnogenesis then is the process through which ethnic identities are formed. You've written also that ethnogenesis created a cultural identity for the Seminole. You say that by the Seminole and Miccosukee peoples embracing a primordial narrative, they have forged a workable social cohesion and a blueprint for daily life, and that the Seminole Wars forced them to develop an ethnogenesis as resistance for survival. What do you mean by this? But what I bring to the study of ethnogenesis in regards to the Seminole is the forces of nativism and resistance, both of which I argue were sparked, ignited by the Seminole Wars. Now, by training and by practice, I'm an archaeologist. What I wanted to bring to the study of the Seminole Wars and the cultural history of the Seminoles was an archaeological perspective. What could I find in the ground that I could add to the studies of others, anthropologists and historians? What could I add to their perspectives based on the archaeological record? That really hadn't been done before. So I was looking for tangible material expression as evidence through artifacts, as evidence through settlement patterns, where the Seminoles placed their villages, how they buried their dead. Looking at, at those kinds of lines of evidence for ways in which they created their own identity. So I was looking for a more active role for the Seminoles in creating what they called themselves, how they identified themselves. And I was trying to use the archaeological record, what I could find, and looking for anomalies in the archaeological record that might best be explained by using the process of ethnogenesis, and looking for ways in which ethnogenesis could be used to account for how the Seminoles came to be who they are today. Nativism and resistance get to what you're asking in your question. I argue that they purposefully and intentionally went back to their roots as a culture prior to the European influence, prior to the American influence, seeking out primordial roots, who they were traditionally and combine that with their active resistance against being removed uh, through military means by the United States government. Those two forces, I think, led to the creation of a new identity, of a pan-Indian identity as Seminole Indians, as distinct from their individual bands or who their leaders were in their small group. Why did the Native American tribes of Florida lack such a narrative prior to the Seminole Wars? We have to go back and understand who the Seminoles were, where they came from ancestrally. Many of them developed out of the mound-building cultures of the ancient southeast. These were the, the cultures that built the large temple mounds that we see in places in northern Florida and in Georgia and in Alabama, the cultures that became known as the Creeks when the Europeans come in, particularly the British cultures known as the Appalachian to the Spaniards. These mound-building cultures that were presided over by chiefs, these were chiefdom-organized cultures that had centralized 
villages around the main ceremonial mounds, but were primarily populations of dispersed families or dispersed lands that were farming and hunting out in the hinterlands up and down the river valleys and who would gather for ceremonial purposes several times during the year, but for the most part lived in smaller villages organized around matrilineal clan relationships. Through the process of interacting with huge social disruptions brought on by European influence, depopulation due to disease, the chiefdoms became less centralized, less organized, and the forces were acting more on the smaller groups to dissociate themselves for survival and to perhaps reorganize themselves in new locations. We have a scattershot of smaller family or band-level organizations taking place in the southeast, in lower Georgia, lower Alabama, in northern Florida, and these were the groups that become coalesced as the Seminoles. As the European and American trading economies start to prevail, start to proliferate, start to predominate in these areas, the incentive was for the smaller villages to become economically self-sufficient as they struck up trading deals and trading relationships with the European and Anglo traders. At the same time, the colonial governments were seeking a centralized government to make their treaty relationships with the Southern Indians easier. They were looking for leaders that spoke for large numbers of people that they could sign treaties with, while the underlying social process was acting in just the opposite direction. We had a very decentralized, almost chaotic social processes going on in the late 18th through the early 19th centuries and lack of social cohesion above the level of the band or even the town, matrilineal small group societies. It's on this social reality that the Seminole War began to act. It was the pressures from the Seminole Wars, I argue, that bring these people together to begin to form some kind of unitary solidarity to form a resistance to fight back against the incursions of the United States government through its military. We could say the Seminoles had pluralistic cultural and biological origins, given that they were composed of disparate groups speaking different languages and who had distinct histories. How surprising is it that they did not have a unified view? when the wars began. It's not surprising it to be expected. That was the social reality, that they were not really unified except for expedience purposes, perhaps when when forced to come together to sign treaties or to meet with government agents. But even then, you see 15, 20 or more signatures on these treaties, which indicates, again, that there were lots of smaller groups operating relatively independently of each other or autonomously of each other. These are the groups that needed to come together to some kind of a coherent resistance. To the extent they were able to do that and come out the other side is what I argue became the foundations for the modern seminal cultural identity. So you had disunity going into the wars. You had a disparate number of seminal leaders signing these treaties. Seems there's a fundamental disconnect between how the U.S. government thought Seminoles governed themselves and how the Seminoles actually did so. The U.S. taking its own background into consideration without recognizing how the Seminoles were formed. I think that's true. It may have been 
wishful thinking on the part of the United States government, hoping that there was some kind of centralized leadership like they had in Washington that could, with some kind of consensus or majority rules process, agree on and sign these treaties, which wasn't the case. It was more like these groups operating very independently, like had been with the dynastic Europe prior to the formation of the modern European nation state. The government recognized this much more readily than did the United States government. It was a matter of just not wanting to acknowledge or put in the effort to recognize how many different interests and how many different groups were really operating. It's not as if the government completely ignored the advice that they were getting from the people they were sending out to bring these people together, like Horatio Dexter and some of the Indian agents who recognized the degree to which the Seminoles were dispersed throughout the peninsula and were operating independent of each other. I think it just became a matter of convenience and expedience that they wanted to make deals with the least number of people possible to accomplish their goal. But again, I was looking for all this to add to the understanding of this entire historical process through contributions of archaeology, which set my quest somewhat apart from the quest of the historian or the anthropologist. And one thing I was trying to remedy in my own work was the tendency of archaeologists not to talk to historians, historians not to talk to archaeologists. Archaeology in the United States is part of anthropology, but even within anthropology, archaeologists not talking to cultural anthropologists and vice versa. So we were developing the silos of knowledge about the Seminoles and other American Indians, for that matter, during this period, and not really crossing those boundaries. My hope was to contribute archaeological evidence to this process to convince and compel others to pay attention to archaeology, what it could offer, and to help break down those silos. My publications were geared toward demonstrating that to the point that other scholars would pay attention. What has your research told you about how Seminoles made decisions for the tribe or tribes at the start of the Second Seminole War? What I learned through looking at the archaeological evidence was that there were processes in place, processes taking shape, processes that were motivating the Seminoles. There were processes that were forming, that were taking shape, in which the Seminoles were getting back in touch with their deeper cultural roots that were independent of the European or the American influence that they had adopted in the previous 30, 40, 50, 60 years. That's what I call nativism. Our evidence for that in their rejection of the elements of European or American material culture that they had readily accepted up until this point. And this was primarily through the ceramics, the European manufactured ceramics that they had actually valued and had been pervasive in American Indian culture, not only with the Seminoles, but throughout Southeastern Indian cultures, rejecting those ceramics as symbolic of an acceptance of European or American culture. Me not finding those ceramics in archaeological sites that dated to the Seminole Wars era, in spite of how common those ceramics were in Seminole archaeological sites dating up to the war period. 
So an anomaly that needed some explanation. My explanation was that this was an intentional rejection of the material evidence of European and American culture and the native culture. So a resurgence of nativism and then an expression of resistance to the dominant American culture. I looked at this through finding military buttons in Seminole Indian archaeological sites that dated to the war period. The buttons not being evidence of just buttons, but as being evidence of military coats, military jackets worn by the Seminoles and the textiles themselves having deteriorated or disintegrated in the ground, but the buttons surviving. So then the question becomes, why were they wearing United States military clothing? We touched on that somewhat in our previous discussion, but I think as this became a symbol of resistance to the Army saying to them through the symbolic wearing of this clothing that we are worthy adversaries. We are here to stand against you. We can conquer you. Look, we are wearing your clothing. We have obtained these military jackets and clothing from your dead soldiers. We are not to be messed with. Combining these things, in my view, that I was finding in the archaeological record, gave me evidence of an emerging Seminole identity that perhaps had not been as strongly expressed prior to the Seminole War period. Fast-forwarding to the present day, looking at how the modern-day Florida Seminoles are so proud of their heritage that they call themselves the unconquered people. When you go to the reservations and you look at the signs that they've painted on the sides of their buildings, calling themselves the unconquered Seminole. So the unconquered Seminole has become a modern-day shorthand for how they have identified themselves as in terms of their successful resistance to a removal by the United States government. Sort of moving forward in time and moving backward in time, combining these things, synthesizing these things, left me with an understanding that the Seminole Wars period was a cultural watershed in forming the modern Florida Seminole cultural identity. Which would you say happened with ethnogenesis as resistance? That it superseded their original identity, or that it was more of an overlap on top of identities they already had? I think it was a synthesis of identities that they already had. It was going back and selectively pulling forward elements of the identities that they already had within their careers, bringing them together in slightly different ways. The seminal identity through ethnogenesis, in my mind, was a very creative process in which they were forming this new identity as a synthesis of what already existed. Without the U.S. government's military campaign against the Seminole and the second of these wars, might the Seminole as a people simply have disintegrated because of their disunity? Well, that's extrapolative. I try not to engage in that because it's speculative and conjectural and sort of an alternative history. I don't know. There could have been other ways in which they came together. Another, if, if you cast aside the Seminole Wars as something that didn't occur, then you have to then allow for things that we didn't contemplate occurring. So there could have been other factors, other processes that brought them together, or they may have come to exist as individual Pueblo-like autonomous identities like we see in New Mexico and Arizona, where we have numbers of sovereign individual 
autonomous pueblos existing up and down the Rio Grande Valley and over into Arizona that outsiders call the Pueblo Indians, but to each of them, they have their own identities based on where they live and who they're related to. Could have gone that way. We don't know. It's all in the realm of conjecture. We may have had a Florida that instead of Seminoles and Mikasukis eventually consolidating on large reservations, we could have had a series of 10, 11, 12 smaller reservations spread across Central and South Florida, which would have made the political and economic and social geography of Florida much different than the way it is now. Given that the Second Seminole War did come, how did the Seminole overcome the limitations inherent in their normally autonomous tribal nature so they could counter these military campaigns? There were several engagements in which the separate band communicated with each other, coordinated with each other, and formed a unified front against the military incursions. One of these, of course, was at the Dade attack. One was at the Izzard attack, Gaines's troops, and also at the Battle of Okeechobee. Those are three examples of leaders of the different bands coordinating their effort, coordinating their resistance. So there was that coordination of warriors coming together to fight in a single place in a single time. So that took communication that took coordination. That communication paved the way for greater facilitation of groups making decisions based on what other groups were doing. As the war went on after Okeechobee, that became less and less frequent as the military penetrated more deeply into the heartland of where the Seminoles were removing themselves. But processes that were in motion persisted. The various bands established communication networks, which you've mentioned. Besides transporting intelligence, they transported trade goods, military materials, even Seminole warriors, women and children. How essential were these networks for allowing the Seminole to resist the Army's onslaught? They were essential. That kind of communication between groups and the movement of intelligence from one group to another in terms of alerting these other groups to the movement of the troops was essential. Of course, one of the main strategies of the Seminole to survive the war was to keep the troops away from the women and children and their villages. They were largely, particularly in the beginning of the war, successful in doing that so that women, children, and the elderly were not captured or not attacked by troops as they were moving forward. The tactics the Seminole used were to engage the troops on ground that they were familiar with, terrain that favored the Seminole way of war, and that usually involved moving or distracting, delaying, diverting the military away from the villages and engaging them in other locations. That was essential in the first couple years of the war to keep the odds in the Seminole favor. How much harm did the U.S. Army and its sister services do to disrupt these networks and thus whittle down resistance of the Seminoles for removal? Whether they knew it or not, ultimately, they became more and more effective in disrupting those lines of communication. They were not as effective in disrupting the annual green corn dance ceremonies that brought the Seminoles back together. That was an essential ceremony, an essential process that kept the spirituality and the sense of social well-being Seminoles alive. And the green corn dance continued to function throughout the war years. The communication that that required must have survived. Otherwise, they would not have been able to come together at an agreed-upon time and place to perform 
perform the rituals involved in the green corn dance. Ultimately, as the war years dragged on and as, as more troops were in the field and their activities became more aggressive, sister services were deployed by water through the Everglades. Ultimately, our communication must have been disrupted to the point where small groups were again functioning autonomously on their own without knowledge of what other groups were doing. There were leaders that were very important in this process from the Seminole standpoint. Of course, Osceola and the traditional leaders get moved out very early in the war years. But some other leaders stepped forward, like Kawakachi or Wildcat, as he's known, was a very important figure. He's captured and imprisoned at Fort Marion, the Castillo in St. Augustine. He famously escapes through his efforts. He brings together bands that were operating separately from each other through his influence, brings them together to fight at the Battle of Okeechobee. As some of these individual leaders become themselves the conduit of communication and information, as long as they were able to stay in the field and stay active, there was still a spark in the Seminole resistance. As time goes on, that, that spark becomes dimmer and dimmer, and finally we're left with smaller groups of Seminoles dispersing and hiding themselves out in the Big Cypress and in the Everglades. They ultimately become the Florida survivors. But they have already, in my view, embraced and have imbibed the spirit of nativism and resistance and have the ability within themselves to create what becomes later the Seminole worldview, the Seminole culture of unconquered people. Quite ironic that the more autonomous individual groups became, the more unified they became as a people because of the resistance to the removal policy. They had already absorbed those core elements of ethnogenesis. As they dispersed, which is what they needed to do for survival, as their numbers uh, diminished and as military pressure became more intense through the years, they had already embraced those values. So even though they were not operating as a cohesive larger group, each of the smaller groups had already absorbed, imbibed, adopted those values. Even though they were separated, they shared in, in those same beliefs. And uh, years and years later, when they start to come together again as a unified political body, which is a topic of another conversation, and historians and political scientists have all weighed in on this, and we know how divisive and factionalized that process became in the 20th century. Nonetheless, the one thing they all had in common was their reference back to their successful fight against the United States government in the Seminole Wars. You have written that Seminole identity is defined by both persistence and change. What do you mean by this? What I mean by that is they've retained the parts of their ancestral, traditional Southeastern Indian culture. They've retained those values and those practices that are core features of their culture, like the annual green corn dance, while at the same time selectively allowing in influences from other cultures, like the European or American cultures, that serve their interests, have allowed them to survive. Gaming is an example of that. Using the sewing machine to make the patchwork 
patterns that become really identified with seminal culture in the early 20th century. Those kinds of things have brought them all together seamlessly in a way that have, have defined for themselves who they are, quite apart from being defined by outsiders. They've brought together very traditional aspects. Those have persisted in spite of heavy pressures to, to dissolve them, and they've selectively brought in things from the outside world, from the modern world, to use to reinforce how they see themselves as a culture. So persistence and change exist side by side, reinforcing each other. That is what makes Seminole culture unique. This identity of the Seminole as the unconquered people has become part of what the outside world expects the Seminole to be. How does this manifest itself in our popular culture? One easy way for the outside world to understand who the Seminoles are is to look at them as the people who didn't surrender, who didn't succumb to the United States government, that they became the unconquered people. And somehow, because they didn't become dominant or oppressive or didn't interfere with the mainstream of American culture to the extent that it was going to inconvenience anybody, it became a convenient shorthand without having to really delve into the processes of how they came to be or who they are or how they survived or how they've become who they are in the 21st century. People looking for easy understandings, I think, have just sort of shorthanded them as the unconquered people. They've just been able to exist on their own, apart from the rest of American or Floridian society. When the road has not been easy, has not been paved with riches, or they've not gotten a free pass into the 21st century, I would say that they have created an identity of unconquered people, partly as a shelter, as a shell to keep people away from themselves by giving the rest of American society an easy way to understand them without yielding their privacy. How have the Florida Seminole and Mikasuki tribes turned this identity of an unconquered people to their advantage today, and one would probably say in parts of the 20th century, to get to today? They've been able to use this as a way in which the outside world can understand who they are without intruding upon the deeper elements of their culture, without invading their privacy, without getting into the elements of their culture that they consider to be sacred or in need of protection from the outside world. They've used it to their advantage because it's an easy way to quickly understand who they are. To comprehend better who the Seminole are today as a people, how important is it that we take an integrated approach using history, anthropology, archaeology, and some knowledge of contemporary Florida Seminole culture? An integrated approach is the only way to come to a, a satisfactory, comprehensive understanding of who the Seminoles are. And in recent years, this wasn't necessarily the case when I started out my research years ago, but in recent years, the Seminoles themselves have come forward to tell their own stories. They have their own tribal museum, which is entirely of their own creation, which tells their story the way they want it told. In addition to the scholarly resources that we're comfortable with, that we're trained in using, uh, those of history, those 
of cultural anthropology and ethnography, those of archaeology, have to also increasingly acknowledge that the Seminoles are telling their own story, and we can integrate that in through our knowledge that we've derived through scholarship. We can give it equal footing, which we should do, and we can use what we've learned and bring it to what they're telling us, their story, to develop our own understandings of who they are. But we shouldn't use our knowledge as a way to dominate the story that the Seminoles themselves are telling. This is the Seminole Wars podcast. So in summary, I just would like to know what you think is the continued cultural importance of the Seminole Wars themselves to Florida. The continued cultural importance is that the Seminoles themselves view the Seminole Wars as extremely integral part of who they are and how they've survived as a culture and the foundry or the cauldron through which their present, their contemporary culture was formed. It's culturally important to the Seminoles. It's important to anybody trying to understand the Seminoles in a fuller way to engage with the circumstances of the Seminole Wars and understand how it shaped their culture. How it impacted the culture of the emerging Florida political scene as Florida became a territory and ultimately a state. How the culture of the early white Floridians was shaped by the experience of the Seminole Wars. This was an extremely important part in Florida history that has historical consequences but is also an extremely important part of the cultural history of both the Seminole Indians, who acknowledge it themselves. We must acknowledge it as scholars using this integrated approach of anthropology, archaeology, history, oral history, and understanding the interaction between the Seminoles of that time period and the Florida pioneers and Florida politicians and the emerging territorial and statehood politics of Florida that shaped how Florida came to identify itself as a territory and a state of the United States and how the Floridian culture interacted with the Seminole culture and was shaped by the experience of going through the Seminole Wars. All those things are extremely important if we want to have a greater and deeper understanding of not only who we are as Floridians today, but who the Seminoles are as Floridians today and why they're here and why they should be here and why they have a very strong voice in shaping modern Florida culture. Before we go, please tell us how you became interested in the Seminole and the Seminole Wars. I became interested in the Seminoles quite by chance, and this is one of those serendipitous experiences that can be life-changing that seem perhaps uh, random or inconsequential when they happen, but end up steering the direction of your life. As I was a graduate student looking for a research project that could become my own, that could be used in my dissertation research, I happened to be handed a diary that had recently come into the hands of some Floridians, Frank Lomer and others, and the diary was written by a young Lieutenant Henry Prince. I've written about this extensively in my first book 
called Like Beads on a String. I was handed this diary and told to go off and see if I could find any of the locations, any of the sites, any of the places on the sketch maps that Henry Prince drew in his diary, see what I could make of this diary. I had no detailed knowledge of the geography that he was talking about, the modern locations he was talking about, if anything even existed today that could be found, that could relate back to the Prince diary. He was describing the Cove of the Withlacoochee, which is now, for the most part, in Citrus County, Florida. With his diary and with maps in hand, off I went as a much younger person, as a graduate student, seeking to find those sites, those scenes that Prince described and then he drew and sketched. That is what set me on the path that I ended up pursuing for much of my professional career. If our listeners want to learn more about your scholarship, how would you recommend they go about that? My first experiences with the Prince Diary are described in my first book, which was published in 1989. That resulted from the previous six years or so of research in the Prince Diary and expanding from there my own quest to understand the Seminole culture in a larger, more integrated way. That book was published by the University of Alabama Press. It's called Like Deeds on a String. It's still in publication. It still can be found. still out there if you can find it. From there, I went on to publish a number of other articles and several other books dealing with Seminole culture, Seminole archaeology, Seminole history. Some of the articles are going to be more difficult to find in journals. In 1999, I published a more popular-oriented book meant to be read by the general public, meant to be placed in museum bookstores that could be a guide to seminal culture and seminal history. That one was called Unconquered Peoples. It was published by the University of Press in Florida. That is also still in press, still in publication, not out of print. That was University of Press of Florida. That book became a popular bestseller for the University Press. They still keep it on the front row of their bookshelves. It's quite readily available. Subsequently, over the years, I continued to publish as I continued to research and study and re-examine and evolve my thinking on the Seminoles. I became much more interested in the interaction between the Seminole Indians and the so-called Black Seminoles over the years and published a number of book chapters and articles on that topic that can be found by Googling. Several years ago, I had the privilege of editing a book in cooperation with the Seminole Tribe with their Tribal Historic Preservation Office called We Come for Good. Each chapter in that book was written by different members of the Seminole Tribe's Historic Preservation Office telling what they do, how they have worked diligently to preserve the traditions of the tribe, preserve and present them, how they've used the traditions of the Seminole Tribe to help the Seminoles tell their own story, how they've used the preservation office to uphold and maintain the sovereignty of the Seminole tribe. The book is quite detailed, but also very accessible. That was published by the University of Press of Florida called We Come for Good. Those are some of the highlights of my publications on Seminole topics. My publications will lead serious readers into this whole realm of scholarship and hopefully will lead them into both broader and deeper understanding of who the Seminoles are. Dr. Brent Weissman, thank you again for joining us for The Seminole Wars. Thank you, Patrick. I'm very happy to have participated in this podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. 
leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rudy Onman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.